You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a little undercover. I'm at the New York Edition Hotel, just off of Madison Square Park. It's incredibly chic. Think cream-colored walls and soft candlelight in the evening. And the lobby is populated with amorphous couches that look like sculptures. And I can only assume they're Italian or Scandinavian. And then there are these two chairs that look really out of place. May I ask you a question about this chair you're sitting in? Sure. Is it comfortable? Not at all. (laughs) Why are you sitting in it? Because there's only one open and I'm waiting for a room. (laughs) That's very funny. While the rest of the lobby oozes luxurious cosmopolitan minimalism, these chairs look a little janky. They're simple. They're wood, with netting where a cushion would be. And they look a little worn, a little rigid, with screws coming out. Kind of like something you would have made in shop class. But also, it would have earned you an A+. Because they're interesting looking. The legs connect in an upside-down V-shape and the armrest sits at the point of the V. And that V shape is a really distinct style. And if those chairs are what I think they are, then they have a very interesting backstory. Are those chairs real? The man sitting in the uncomfortable chair tells me he doesn't think so. I don't think they're real. Yeah? I couldn't imagine they're real. He says he knows when furniture is valuable and when it's not. I think the man at the front desk is asking someone who would know. I asked the bartender. I asked the concierge. And it takes someone from the back to come out to confirm my hunch about these particular chairs. That they are indeed real. And they are indeed special. And not just because they're incredibly expensive and valuable, or because I've seen pictures of those same chairs in Kourtney Kardashian's dining room. I grew up around these chairs. I, we have a, a whole bunch at home. I have some here in the United States. This is Vikram Prakash, professor of architecture at the University of Washington in Seattle. But he grew up in a city in India called Chandigarh, the town where the chairs are from. They were everywhere. I grew up in it uh, every day of my life. And I love it. It's beautiful. Uh, but I do and did think that the right place for it was the recycling heap. This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. This first season is called Utopian. 
It's about a perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman, and I first came into the edition for a drink a long time ago. And I remembered these chairs. They stuck with me. I like them a lot, aesthetically. And a lot of people like them. If you mention the city of Chandigarh, most design enthusiasts will be like, oh, the chairs. Why are they, like, why are the chairs the thing? Like, I think of it as the symbol. Yes, okay. So I think that that's a fascinating and controversial story. At midnight, when the 14th of August became the 15th in 1947, India became an independent nation. After over 200 years of colonial rule, at this historic moment, the first prime minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, gave a speech. Long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. Nehru was a progressive politician who was mentored by Gandhi. He had been pushing for an independent India for decades. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. And somewhat biblically, there's this twin birth. The British partitioned colonial India to cleave a new country, Pakistan, to house the Muslim minority in the territory. There's this massive migration. Muslims off to Pakistan, non-Muslims off to India. The partition, uh, because that was done along ethnic and uh, well religious lines, uh, the massive amount of migration that took place from both sides of the border, about 10 million people moved from one side of the border to the other. And this provoked a huge amount of violence in which an estimated uh, 1 million people lost their lives. The partition divided the former British province of Punjab in half. The eastern part went to India. And the western part, with its capital city of Lahore, went to Pakistan. Now, Indian Punjab was a headless province, without a capital. And for Indian Prime Minister Nehru, this was an opportunity. So Nehru, looking to set up a assiduously secular mold to the new Indian nation-state, did not want the new city to be made as a kind of a Hindu city or a non-Muslim city or a Sikh city or a sort of a culturally inscribed city, but a modernist city. For Nehru, secularism seemed to be the only path to peace, the way forward for this new independent India. It was an aspirational city, unfettered by the traditions of the past and a symbol of the nation's faith in the future. A place for people displaced by partition, of all religions and backgrounds. A welcoming, peaceful metropolis. A beacon of resilience and strength in a new nation. And if this city was to be truly new, truly unfettered from the past or any particular religion, it couldn't look like anything ever seen before. Nehru didn't want anything steeped in nostalgia or anything created with any trace of colonialism. And so he created Chandigarh. And Jawaharlal Nehru made the decision that rather than simply pick 
any one of the cities that already existed in Punjab that the state should make a new city because he wanted to project this concept of renewal and rethinking and that uh, urbanization should uh, have a sort of a modernist outlook. Modernism was a school of thought spread across art, design, and architecture in the 19th and 20th centuries. The globe had just fought in two world wars, and it was clear that the ways our societies were structured had to be fundamentally rethought. Designers and planners around the world were reconsidering the best ways to house people after so much had been destroyed, and then how to mass-produce goods to fit their needs. And what this actually looked like, at least in most of the countries thinking about these priorities, were the concrete and glass towers rising all over the UK and Russia and Germany. Apartment blocks with little windows rising like square, gray layer cakes. On the one hand, it was an impersonal style, sure, but it was also a uniting style, the universal home for everyone. So this doesn't seem like the most romantic design for a brand new city. And also, it might seem very Eurocentric for a post-colonial Indian city, but that wasn't Nehru's vision. He just wanted whatever was working. Nehru was bringing in all the American engineering to build all his hydroelectric dams, and he was bringing Soviet, uh, uh, you know, planners to help him with the five-year plans and so on and so forth. And so this uh, ethos of using the West, the phrase was the West on tap rather than on top, so to speak. The West on tap rather than on top. Like, let's use them to our advantage. So to Nehru... Modernism was the perfect new movement on the block that he could tap into. To design Chandigarh, first Nehru gets an American planner, Albert Meyer, and a Polish-American architect named Matthew Nowicki. The two start a master plan for the new city. When Meyer and Nowicki came to India, the Indian planners so loved Nowicki that they basically handed the whole project over to Nowicki. And then Nowicki was going back to the U.S. to get his wife and two kids, two boys, to come back and basically live in India and design Chandigarh when his uh, TWA flight crashed over Egypt. Nowicki is killed in a plane crash, which is just horrifying on a lot of levels, including for the fate of Chandigarh. The project is off to a bad start. Chandigarh had become a, a wow, what is the city going to be project? Nehru is in need of a replacement, an impressive one, especially considering how much everyone loved Nowicki. So Nehru finds him. And this replacement is a get. Somehow, Nehru ropes in the canonical king of modernism, the mononymous Elvis of architecture, Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier was one of the architects who truly established the aims and goals of modernism. And this is the guy who said the house is a machine for living in. His work looked like machinery. No space for kitsch and clutter. He was renowned for his soaring yet austere concrete buildings, as well as his signature round spectacles and bow tie. He'd been a leader in the field since 1905. But by 1950, the Swiss-born architect was leaning towards the end of his career. Le Corbusier, we're also going to call him Corb or Corbu, isn't immediately in on Chandigarh. He would have to move to India, and he sticks up his nose a bit at the idea of a salary paid on an Indian government scale. But then, Corb comes up with an idea. Pierre Genere, his cousin, who is also an architect. 
And he told Janaray that, here, this way, why don't you go to India and you be me in India? Corbu and Janaray are partners and also kind of rivals because they're different in every way. Corb is six feet something. Janaray, just over five feet. Janaray is quiet in contrast with the stubborn loudness of Corbu. And unlike Corbu, Pierre Janaray is well-liked. And I've heard you call... Uh, Call him PJ. Did everyone call him PJ? Yes, yes. In India, uh, <laughs> everybody called him PJ. Yeah, PJ. I don't know if they meant pajamas, but no. But PJ, <laughs> he was known as PJ. Uh, he was known as the saint and the ascetic. PJ signs on and heads to his post in India to fulfill Corbu's vision. Because Corbu had made the master plan. Well, he felt that a city is like a human body, and, and uh, that's why he put the capital complex on the north, which is the head or the brain, where the largest amount of activity takes place uh, in the human body. This is Mac Serene. My name is Manmohan Lal Serene, but all friends uh, call me Mac. Mac is a lawyer in Chandigarh. He's lived there since he was six. His family moved there before it was built. My father was also a lawyer, and uh, he used to practice uh, in Lahore, which is now a part of Pakistan, in the Lahore High Court. And when partition took place in 1947, at very short notice, uh, my parents and my elder three siblings had to leave. Mac's father would eventually work in this capital complex, the head of the body, with all the state institutions, like the High Court and the Secretariat. This head is designed by Corb. Picture austere, soaring concrete that towers over people, punctuated with the occasional swath of red, yellow, orange, and green paint, kind of like accent walls. To adjust for local climate, Le Corbusier adds overhangs that deflect sunlight and enormous reflecting pools designed to cool the buildings, although eventually they also had to add air conditioning. One side of the legislative building looks like a concrete hull of a ship resting on massive piers. There's no mistaking that this is the head of the city. And then, according to Corb's plan, below that is the stomach. The stomach is the commercial center, which is sector 17. And then there are the limbs. The two limbs were the university uh, on the one side and the industrial area on the other. And the lungs. Throughout the city, you have these uh, green belts, as we call them. These rows of gardens and trees to give you a space to breathe. So that is, that is the basic concept, and it's like a human body, and I think it works extremely well. The rest of the city was designed to house about 500,000 people living in distinct, self-sufficient neighborhoods. Each neighborhood would have its own shops, schools, health centers, recreation centers, and up to 14 categories of housing, including single-family houses, duplexes, row houses, hostels, and student housing. All of these, everything that wasn't the head, is designed by PJ along with the English architects Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew, with the assistance of a team of nine Indian architects, which includes Vikram Prakash's dad. And that's how my father came into the project, too, because he was in London. So he wrote to Maxwell Fry and said, you know, I, I hear you've got this project, uh, and I want to return to India. And together, this team of architects design every single thing about the city. Not just the lungs and the limbs and the stomach, but the hair and the nails and the skin cells, so to speak. So what the architects did was that they would, you know, they would master plan the city in the morning and design the 
the buildings basically in the afternoons, which was their day job. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of being rhetorical here a little bit, but basically in the evening after scotch, they would de design the furniture because that was just the simplest and easiest way to get the furniture built. Part of the visual language of the city was to be its furniture. And not only those wooden chairs, tables, lamps, all the interiors, and the government buildings, and the schools, and the offices, all the public spaces, so that the city could be a complete vision. Something beautiful and cosmopolitan, both indoors and out. And there was a more practical motivation to designing the furniture themselves. The reason why all this furniture came into being was because that was the cheapest way to furnish the buildings. It was cheaper to design and have the furniture locally built rather than buy off-the-shelf furniture. So all the architects got to work designing chairs. And even if it's over scotch, it's not done carelessly. These had to be standardized chairs that could be made quickly with local materials and very easily replicable and cheap. So of course, they need to be designed well. This is like real DIY IKEA, a style made accessible to the masses. You know, the vision of total and complete modernity. From the modernist's perspective, the standard chair was always an ergonomic chair. They had to be chairs perfect for the human body that would be the healthiest to sit in and also the most beautiful and efficient and sturdy enough for everyday use. That was the goal of modernism, the goal of Shandagar, to make something clean and neutral and good for everyone. There is a template of a sort of chair design with that inverted V-shape on both sides, the armrests above them. But collectively, the team makes about 30 to 40 variants of chairs, and it becomes a bit of a competition. And they all sort of were ranges of the similar design. They were all sort of shades of gray, if you like. But the inbuilt contradiction in modernism was that everybody claimed that their chair was more ergonomic than the other one's chairs, right? Although to an outsider, all these chairs look pretty similar, but you can't tell that to an architect. So my father, I have these photographs of him drawing a full-scale figure of the human body, you know, on the blackboard, and then the chair is detailed on it, and he's arguing with Jeanne on, no, 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 my chair is, you know, two inches wider over here. Imagining this possibly scotch-fueled conversation between Aditya Prakash, Vikram's dad, and Pierre Jeanne about the details of a chair is a window into the complication of Nehru's modernist vision. Nehru said he wanted the West on tap, not on top. But on this project, the foreign team is leading. Corbusier and Genere are on top. The Indian architects are assistants. So the competition, inherent in the chairs, is more than just some friendly rivalry. In some ways, those Indian architects are competing against the structure of colonialism, pushing back on that dynamic of master colonized. Like, I think it was Rushdie who said, you know, we speak English better than the English today, and we certainly play cricket better than the English. So that's a different issue. Let's not go down there. Uh, so at this point, uh, the, the aspiration of the project was always that we are going to do modernism better than Corb. So thousands of the chairs, mass-produced versions of each of the over 30 kinds of variations, are churned out and put into the new city placed in government buildings for people to sit in and work in every day. Vikram grew up all around the chairs 
but he didn't really think too much of them. As a city emerges, Chandigarh is kind of a humble place to live. It's a town of civil servants. You know, that time it felt more like probably growing up in Washington, D.C. Everybody was a salaried employee, which meant that everybody was reasonably well-off, but not wealthy. And Chandigarh just has a lot of space because it was designed with a lot of roads for cars and greenways. And also because it's so new. At the same time, the major city of Delhi has a population of over two and a half million people crowding the pedestrian-rich streets, while Chandigarh's population is listed as just above 120,000. It's incredibly different. And I remember the days in summers when we were cycling on the main road called the Madhya Mark. Because of the heat, I used to shut my eyes and ride my bicycle for (laughs) hundreds of meters. There was no traffic whatsoever. And, you know, as a young boy, one used to say, OK, uh, this time I've gone from one lamppost to another with my eyes shut. Next time I'll do it for two. <laughs> and the city begins to find its legs. More families like Max and Vikrams move in. And life begins to unfold in all its messiness. In 1966, the Punjab state, which is majority Sikh, reluctantly shares Chandigarh as a capital with its neighboring state of Haryana which is majority Hindu. Arguments arise between Sikhs and Hindus about things like whether or not smoking should be allowed in the city. Shantytowns and slums emerge, and lower caste Punjabis rise up in periodic violence to protest mistreatment. Citing safety reasons, Corbu's capital complex is chained off with barbed wire, inaccessible to the public. A New York Times article from 1970 says that once green lawns are scorched and weedy, Many homes are grimy with weather stains, having had no fresh coat of whitewash for years. And some that had been whitewashed had been painted over with garish blues, pinks, and greens that clashed with the soft browns and yellows of the surrounding prairie. Isn't that kind of petty how they critique the colors people want to use? Whatever. Anyway, in time, everything about Chandigarh starts to get a little worse for the wear. The politics, the economics, and the chairs. The mesh jute sags the wood splinters and scuffs, these chairs are cheap. Always meant to be cheap. And they're designed so that when they inevitably deteriorate, they can be bought by local recyclers at a reasonable price who could maybe salvage the wood to make some new furniture. And when that purpose was not usable, the thing would be broken down and used as firewood so that you could cook chapatis and dal and roti and and, and the good stuff on it. The chairs were supposed to live among the people of this new capital, and support them, whether it meant giving them a place to sit or a means to eat. Like the giving tree, this quiet and subtle support of a new city in a new country. It's just that no one expected how the city would outgrow the chairs in a surprising way. But that's after the break. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. 
So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In the late 1990s, a whole wave of the original Shendigard chairs were aging out. And they were being sold off to local recyclers for firewood, but they piled up. A small group of French art dealers discovered these piles of chairs on the University of Punjab campus and on the balconies of the administrative buildings. And they started to express interest in the chairs. And the local government realized that instead of selling to local recyclers, they could sell for a bit of a higher price to these foreign collectors, these modernism enthusiasts. These chairs were intended to be thrown out anyway, why not make a buck from these people? The West on tap, not on top. A pair of lounge chairs, and we sold that model, has twice reached $179,000. The chairs bought at those sales started hitting the international market through Sotheby's and Christie's auctions in the mid-2000s. And it turns out they could sell for a lot. In 2004, a set of eight chairs sold for over $26,000. I'm Richard Wright. I'm the owner of Wright Auction in Chicago. Wright exhibited and sold some Shundagar furniture in 2007. Basically, dealers who bought the chairs in Shundagar shipped them to warehouses and expertly refurbished them. The chairs became sought after, as Richard Wright told producer Megan Kinane. So we've offered 485 pieces. Wow, that's a lot. Are you guys like, do you, are you kind of the leaders in this? Do you have the most of it? Oh, or I think we are... I think arguably, yes. <laughs> I, I'm not going to opine too deeply on capitalism, but it is the, the, you know, the outcome of capitalism that assigns commodity status onto these items. Their historical importance, you know, makes them desirable. I guess I'll, I'll hide behind the auctioneer's shield. I mean, I, I feel I can't resolve that tension. And by hide behind the auctioneer, he means the dealers are the ones doing the dirty work, in a way. The work of creating a market for the chairs. And in selling the chairs, they sell a story of Chandigarh. A story about a failed modernist utopia. The story of modernism has a lot of failed utopias in it. There is something beautiful in the, in the hope of trying, in believing that design can change the world, even in the failures. The only failure of Chandigarh is that it is too successful. It is, uh, it is a far from a failure. I mean, Chandigarh has changed since the 70s. It's not a clear-cut failed utopia story. Because it's bounced back. Massively. It's become the aspirational city of North India. If you have the money, you buy a house in Chandigarh. When Vikram grew up in Chandigarh, it was like Washington, D.C., and now, it seems to me like it's a bit more Beverly Hills. 
you know, you can find Chandigarh mentioned repeatedly in, for instance, Punjabi rap music. You know, anybody wants to pre- present themselves as being cool, uh, uh, you know, you can listen to this song called Wakhra Swag, where's this Punjabi singer who teams, uh, there are two of them, and he's got a fantastic beat, and then he's got a rap version, and in between he says, you know, I walk around Chandigarh like I was Obama. <laughs> You know, and so that's the kind of, like, oh, okay. So if you can walk around Chandigarh and be cool, then you're like Obama, you know. Parts of Chandigarh are really deluxe now. Fancy cars, sunglasses. So it has create, cultivated an aesthetic, but uh, it's you know, perhaps not the modernist aesthetic that, we, that the original designers hoped it would. Chandigarh was supposed to be an egalitarian, secular, peaceful place for everyone, a place somehow free from the past and the burdens of identity politics. Today, it's a Western-style city plagued with a lot of Western-style problems. The streets have filled up with traffic jams because if you build a city for cars, everyone is going to want a car. It's nearly unrecognizable from Mac's childhood when he would bike around carelessly with his eyes closed. Housing affordability is a major problem now, and the inequality, that has definitely remained. In some ways, it's even more insidious than it was in the 70s. Every house is a cook, uh, a cleaner, a sweeper, a gardener, and they have no place for them to live in in the city. So that's why it's not Indian, uh, uh, because there's such a disparity in their uh, level of uh, the quality of life uh, they live. So they have to live on the fringes. So... It's still not exactly the city for all people that Nehru imagined. But Chandigarh is certainly beautiful, and by some metrics, very successful. It's easy to admire from afar, especially if you're a fan of Corbu. Fantastically, uh, the, the Swiss put Le Cabousier on their 10-franc bill, which is great because architects don't get to go on currency anywhere else in the world. From 1995 to 2017, Le Corbusier's face was featured on a 10-franc bill in Switzerland. This was problematic and ultimately taken out of circulation because of Corbus' ties to fascism and the Vichy government. But Vikram took umbrage with the currency for another reason. Because when you turn the 10-franc bill over, there's a picture of the Secretariat building in Chandigarh. These are, you know, Indian national buildings of state. Uh... And it's like putting the White House or the Eiffel Tower, if you like. That would not make any sense because clearly the identification of these buildings is now with the American nation state. On the Swiss 10-franc note, this building is not a symbol of the dream of Chandigarh or Punjab province, not about the quiet evenings Vikram's father and his team would debate ergonomics over scotch. It's not even about PJ. It's about Le Corbusier, Swiss national identity, and Swiss money which is bizarre. But Max Serene has an interesting take on this. I tell everyone, I said, look, the Swiss think he's so important, they put him on his money. The French think he's such a genius, they get a capital complex declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. We don't recognize his, his worth. Mac thinks that, at the end of the day, this city is Corbu's city, and that has been a powerful tool for its preservation and maintenance. It's kind of the same devil's advocate argument one could make about the chairs. 
If they're not venerated in their home, then why not surrender their ownership to the international community? After all, wasn't this supposed to be the cosmopolitan, secular city of the future, unfettered from Indian history? Well, Corbusier always said that when he was asked, uh, who's going to look after your city? And he says, the citizens of Chandigarh. Uh, yeah, who owns Chandigarh is a very good question. And I will uh, say I own Chandigarh, uh, which is to say, <laughs> you know, those of us who grew up in Chandigarh own Chandigarh. Vikram is now the director of the Chandigarh Urban Lab, a forum on contemporary Indian architecture and urbanism. He takes students from the University of Seattle over to Chandigarh, where they experiment with design and preservation. And in one of the projects, the lab imagined ways the Chandigarh furniture could be reinterpreted in the city, while staying true to its original legacy. How could we further the ethic of recycling as designers? So we ended up proposing, you know, swings could be made out of chairs, street lamps could be made out of chairs. My favorite solution they came up with was to make park benches that look like elongated stretch limo versions of the chairs. I love that it kind of does two things. Replaces cookie cutter park benches that may have been imported from elsewhere and keeps this unique design regional so that it's valued in the place where it lives. Now, this sounds like a fantastic narrative of modernism to me, versus the narrative that, oh no, that these are fetishized objects of uh, Eurocentric provenance, which are disinherited uh, uh, and abused by the post-colonial subject, and therefore must be recovered and returned back to uh, the haloed institutions of the West and sold at their quote-unquote proper prices so that Kim Kardashian, I have nothing against Kim Kardashian or whoever that was, <laughs> uh, and the rest can, can sit in them. It was Courtney, but whatever. Vikram says if you want to buy a knockoff of a Shandigar-style chair, go for it. There are actually a lot on the market. Hell yes, they are beautiful designs. Why not? And it's great to sort of export the Chandigarh aesthetic. I'm, I'm all for that. But the sort of fetishization of the original object, I think, is problematic. The trade of the actual, authentic chairs is a system that rips off the local Chandigarh government and enriches art dealers and investors. In 2011, the city prohibited further disposal of its heritage furniture. These items were then supposed to be assessed and preserved. But really, it's still a bunch of old furniture. And so much of it. And so the chairs are still piled up by the thousands, all across the modernist city, stuck in a kind of purgatory. Too old to use, too valuable to throw away. Everything has come to an end because, uh, you know, they're all bar behind barbed wire now and being held down because people are worried somebody's going to steal a chair and uh, send it to Paris. Or to New York, where businessmen wait for their hotel rooms. The chair continues to explode in value because they're beautiful. And if you come across one, maybe you can sit in it, stiffly, uncomfortably, as a monument to all the failure contained in the success of Chandigarh. If, if I was Mirarina Abramovich, I would do an installation in, in Kardashian's house. <laughs> 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 you know, and I would bring in all these uh, recyclers from Chandigarh and I'd put all the stack of chairs uh, in one of our other rooms and, and sort of set it on fire <laughs> uh, so that at least they would generate warmth, you know? I mean, they'd be fantastic. 
Another utopia, another country, another time. In some ways, a suburb is the perfect place to restart. It's not lonely like the country. It's not alienating like a city. It's right in the middle. And with homeowners associations and developers, it's the perfect place to set your own rules, completely outside of society. Next time, Levittown, Concord Park, and the pitfalls of social engineering. Thanks to Lokesh Deng for his production support in Shandigar, and to Ajay Jaga for helping us understand the preservation of the city's furniture. Nice Try Utopian is produced by Megan Kinane. Diana Buds is our associate producer. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Gautam Shrikashin is our engineer. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and Utopia does not exist. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.